0: warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is history against the great. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner.
1: Because we the people. Episode 34, this is who we are. Well, welcome back to History Against the Grain. Uh, so we have a very special week. Chris is, uh, we'll just say he's on assignment. Um, I guess I can tell you that he's, he's gone deep, deep undercover with the Proud Boys, to try to infiltrate them and bring them down from within. Uh, you know, normally I, I would say I shouldn't say that out loud. But uh, given that fascists have all lost their uh, their internet privileges, I guess it's okay to do. For the moment, but uh, in his his stead, we have one of our very excellent colleagues at American River College, uh, Professor Ed Hashima. Uh, welcome, Ed. Thanks, Josh. Glad
0: to be here. I'm sitting in the um, the Doc Severinsen seat. <laughs> yeah, that's, there you go. How are you feeling? I'm doing well, all things considered. Um, yeah,
1: it, it's a loaded question, right? Asking <laughs> somebody how they are these days.
0: Right. I mean, ordinarily we would just be saying, "How do you feel about the fact that the semester is going to start next week?" Which um, you know that would
1: raise a lot of ambivalence, but uh, and then this other stuff came up. So <laughs> this this other stuff, as we're calling it, yeah. So uh, just you know, for for the listeners, if you if you listen to our, our episode last week, we recorded on Monday, Tuesday, or Monday or Tuesday—I can't remember—but you know, right before everything went down, we were recording about a coup. So I was literally uh, editing an episode where we talk about coups while a coup was going on. It was a pretty surreal experience, not something I had uh, I had expected. Um, But what what was going on for you as as kind of the news was trickling out about what what was happening?
0: You know, Josh, um, I'm trying to think back. It was a whole week ago, right? Right. (laughs) And I I think, um, you know, for me, it was mostly following along on social media. I wasn't watching any sort of live video or anything like that. I tend not to do that.
1: Um, Now I'm with you, yeah.
0: um, And so, you know, as it was unfolding, um, I think, like many people, I just there was absolutely zero surprise involved you know i think this had been telegraphed for months and um you know you knew what um the the possible likely outcome was going to be so you know as i saw it unfolding i was like how far is this going to go yeah um you know i didn't think there would uh, be any success I, I thought ultimately this thing would be shut down but um, as it was but um you know, as far as they got, maybe that was the only surprising thing, that they were actually able to breach the building and, uh, you know, that these people, that the members of Congress had to basically shelter in place. Uh, that was maybe the only surprise
1: for me. Right now, I think that's that's absolutely right. And, you know, like, I mean, obviously, because we were talking about a coup the day before it happened, it wasn't surprising that this was going on. But But I think you know, what you, what you hit on there is that the, the way it played out was was a little surprising because what it suggested, and, you know, I think we have more information about this now, is that the only people surprised by it were the people who were supposed to keep it from happening, which is uh, not, not ideal. And, um, you know, the, the, the thing that kind of changed over the days, you know, from the initial, uh, what do we call it, riot or, or, or coup or whatever, whatever we want to call it now, right? was there was a way when you saw the images to just imagine like this, you know, this mob of just, you know, insane QAnon, true believers. And it was like, you see pictures of like these grandmas, you know, in their Trump gear. And then as more pictures filter, filtered out, you really got to see, no, there was a lot of dudes in there like in full combat gear. There was the guy with like the twist ties, like yeah. they were going to, you know, take somebody hostage. There was, uh, you know, some evidence. I, I haven't really seen this very clearly what, you know, some people might have been armed mm-hmm. with, with firearms. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but at the very least, you know, they had they had pipes, they had... Um, you know things that could be used as weapons. Yes. And uh, and then you had a police force that was, you know, not only just in numerically not large enough to to stop this, which was a uh, pretty um, uh, in- incredible distinction between this and then you know BLM protests we saw over the summer, certainly. Um, but that we also saw images of of uh, Capitol Police literally kind of opening barricades and opening doors and letting people in. So. You know, I think there there was a bunch of stuff in in the the hours and in the days after was who were, were kind of poo pooing this idea that this is not a coup and you know and trying to like you know have this academic distinction, but it sure looked like a coup to me.
0: Right. If it's you know if it uh, dresses up like a coup and brandishes
1: mm-hmm. weapons like
0: a coup, uh, it's a coup. Uh,
1: yeah, you know, and and I think part part of the other thing is that it doesn't have to be successful to be a coup. There's lots of coups that don't go anywhere. But, correct. I mean, you had the president of the United States you know, rallying people. You had members of uh, at least state representatives, I think. W- one newly elected congressman was actually in the crowd as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I need to say it, Republican con- congressman, <laughs> just let me be clear about that. Um, so, you know, members of the state, um, there's a lot of reports about off-duty police, police officers and uh, yes. military veterans taking yes. part as well. So, you know, if the official military didn't go along with this, which I think some people are, are kind of suggesting is necessary for the coup, I don't think that's true, but... Um, but certainly, you know, informally, you had kind of state actors taking part part in this as well, not just you know, kind of rallying the forces, but but literally uh, taking part in it right. a, as, as well. So that's a, that's scary, right? Because um, they're not going away, right?
0: Exactly. And you know, I mean, in addition, I mean, there are folks, obviously, like the zip tie guy is, mm-hmm. you know, is a retired air force officer, and you know, the the air force, you know, immediately. Said well, he's you know he's retired. We have no influence over him. It'll be curious to see as we go forward. You know how many active duty military might have participated because that's you know that's a violation of their oath and and that's a yeah that's a court martial offense. So um, right, you know, and I've seen I've seen a lot of people talking about the the need to engage in what you know sadly. <laughs> The only word that can be used despite its authoritarian connotations is, you know, we're going to need to purge the military and, you know, law enforcement organizations. Um, So, you know, good work, um, Donald Trump. You've managed to turn us into Stalinist Russia.
1: (laughs) In a roundabout way, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't usually buy the whole idea that you know, if you go far enough left and far enough right, you end up in the same place. Right, but, <laughs> but there is there's a little truth to it, at least. Yeah, I mean, the, the 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 idea of a purge. It's like I don't know if you saw this image, but um, the head of the New York uh, Police Union he was interviewed a few months ago, right? And there was there was literally be, behind him, and pretty clearly, a, a place there was mm-hmm. a, a, a mug that had a QAnon symbol on it. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, so it's like it's you know like. I think the purging these police forces of fascist elements and, uh, you know, abolishing the police, th- that ends up being the same thing, it almost seems like. Yeah. Uh, because it se- it seems as if the, the, the amount of infiltration, the amount of true believers um, is is so great that, you know, if you did purge them, you would be left with basically bare bones police departments right. in, a lot of, in a lot of cities. Right. I think 84% of cops voted for Trump. I th- think right. I saw that. Right. The- um, and not every one of those is, is you know, a active member of a coup, but, um, but you imagine some, some large percentage are.
0: Right. That, you know, that circles back to, you know, your observation and lots of folks' observation about the fact that the, you know, the, the Capitol Police Department, um, you know, if not, if they didn't abet this, uh, you know, this, um, you know, entry into the building, then at the very least, they, they didn't stand in the way. Right. So.
1: Yeah. Right you know, in, in the wake of, of this event, you know, you've had, we've had basically a week now to kind of process it. We've, you know, had uh, a week of stories. W- I mean, what do you think of the tenor? Let me put it this way of the, of the reactions that we've, we've gotten to, um, to this event. Like, you know, are you happy with the way the media's presented it with the way that, uh, you know, the Democrats have responded to it, the way that stories are being published about it. Um, have, have you noticed anything, you know, in those, those, uh, those institutions about how we're processing these things, at least on that elite level.
0: Yeah, um, you know, I, I think I mentioned to you as we spoke before that I started to write down some thoughts, um, like a lot of people probably did, you know, as yeah. this was all unfolding. And one of the things that I, you know, started to think about is, is because you and I, obviously as historians and, and people who teach, people who don't know very much about, you know the basic facts, the basic narratives of historical, you know, uh, experience, right? We oftentimes get these comments, you know, throughout throughout a semester or at the end of a semester, where students, you know, will will say, uh, "Wow, you know, I didn't know that," or uh, you mm-hmm. know, "They never taught us this," and and you know. Um, some variation of that is is certainly something that we saw over the past week which is you know how could this have happened here or yeah. uh, this is not who we are you know as Oof. you you know <laughs> as you made reference <laughs> yeah. to in the in the episode title here um and you know my i my snarky response to that is always you know, I don't say this to the students, of course, because it's not appropriate. But you know, nice. my snarky response to this is always, "Are you new here? You know, <laughs> yep. do, do, would you like the orientation tour? Um, you know, it's all in your folder. You can you can check it out." Yep. Um, so I find, you know, I find that my my sort of my knee-jerk response to what's been going on, and, and I haven't done a very deep dive into this because I do run into the same thing over and over again, I feel, is, you know, precisely that. Are you new here? Have you not been paying attention? And in fact, yeah. you know, I pulled this up. Um, you know, there's there's all these talking heads, obviously, who are being, you know, we're being asked to to weigh in. And I suppose right. we're doing our share to contribute to that. That's yeah, we got it. <laughs>
1: it's our constitutional duty right? right
0: but so you know we talked about you mentioned to me um, that you had heard this uh this interview on wbur uh, with the eminent harvard historian and um, general assignment writer for the new yorker magazine <laughs> yep. uh, jill lapore yeah and um you know i i went and i looked this up i didn't listen to the the entire uh, interview that she did with the you know, the host from WBUR um, you know but she you know they, they hit the highlights. So basically you know the the host asks uh, you know what moments in history might be instructive for Joe Biden as he takes office and attempts to move the country forward And you know she says here, I think there are episodes that will always be inspiring to people. I think if anything though, Those moments don't come from American history at this point, right? We are off the grid of the trajectory Mm -hmm. of American history. So, you know, what she's saying, and this kind of goes to what I, I think had been mentioned earlier in her interview, was that, well, you know, other nations have endured these types of events. Other nations have moved forward from these types of events. So we can learn from them you know we can take inspiration from what happens in you know these other countries where coups are just a reality of life um, yeah. but then that last part of, you know there's nothing in the trajectory of american history maybe she's talking very specifically about you know a- attempted insurrection um but she's wrong in some ways she's
1: totally wrong <laughs> i was hoping you were going there you know yeah, the, the um yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, I, you know, like, uh, man, we'll
0: probably come back to this. We'll probably circle back to this at some point in our discussion. But, you know, uh, you have to look at what happened during Reconstruction. You have to look at what mm-hmm. happened after Reconstruction in the United States. Uh, you know, throughout the post-Reconstruction South, there were lots right. of instances where, you know, armed insurrection did subvert the democratic process Um so, you know, and this maybe speaks to the fact that, you know, when you sort of take on this this role as a general public intellectual, you are likely exposing yourself um, for what you don't know, because you were an expert in so many ways in your field, and now you've sort of taken right. on this this responsibility
1: of knowing everything about anything, and uh, you don't. No, you don't. And, and And it's not even just that you don't, because... You know, I think as historians, when we want to talk about something, we, we, we learn, hopefully we want to learn about it first. Like, you know, that's being in class and being asked questions you don't know the answer to yeah. is the thing that probably has gotten me to, to read more than anything else because I don't want to be the one, you know, I, 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 it's not that I have to know everything, but I want to be able to talk intelligently about a large number of things. And um, the idea of, of, you know, going to an interview like this and not having really thought about the issue all that complex, you know, without <laughs> much complexity. Because the thing that I, you know, because I, I, that's the quote, the quote you pulled out is the one I saw a lot of historians reacting to uh, on social media. And the thing that people particularly hated was the, the whole idea there's a trajectory of of American history as if, you know, there is some kind of, um, uh, you know, there's a flow of history that's always going in one in, in one direction. That's yes. just it's, it's not true at all. You know, these these things are com- are complex. They're not multi- they're not, you know, monocausal. they right uh, there. There's no directionality of history, basically. And for her to to impose that upon it shows a really simplistic way of thinking about history for such an august, you know, scholar and such a, a famed, uh, you know, thinker on American history. So right. it's it's disappointing seeing these kind of liberal historians. And she's not dumb. She's obviously so. a very intelligent person. Um, we see this. You know, I think David Blight has done some of this as well. Mm. Um, you know, a, a lot of the the kind of uh, you know some of the biggest names in American history who spent a lot of their time talking about the bad stuff that happened, still can't seem to get beyond this idea that, you know, beneath all the bad stuff, there's some kernel of of trajectory that's moving us in the right direction that, you know, all these things are just little hurdles we have to get over to get where we were always going in the first place. Right. Um, and that's just, I, I mean, to me at least, that's just not the way that uh, that history works. Um, so it's it is disappointing, particularly because... You know, these are the people who are interpreting history for so many non-historians across the country, um, and it's it's probably not the best way to present this history. Right? Um, yeah, yeah. I
0: think the contrast for me, and this was this was brought up by a friend, but I'm I'm sure many people have seen this, um, is the the historian Heather Cox Richardson, who yes, teaches yeah. not that far away from. Um, Jill Lepore, right up the hill there at BC, um, and mm-hmm. she is a political historian, and I think that her sort of daily, daily takes that that show up in a variety of locations, I think do a much better job of, of you know sort of encapsulating and distilling the, the issues and talking about relevant. Um, historical context so you know we can there is a contrast there
1: yeah absolutely you know and the other thing you know in addition to this this idea that these these are all just speed bumps on our way to i don't know utopia or something like that right um is that the the thing we're seeing a lot in which uh you know commentators are you know you know that was it was in the quote that you that you had from jill poor um that this is something that happens elsewhere this is not us Right. Uh, There's something that ha- happens elsewhere, and you're seeing, you know, references to banana republics, and right. to, uh, it's it's just very dismissive, and it it kind of creating this idea of It's it's uh, enforcing this idea of American exceptionalism that you know f- for us this is not part of our experience. And I think you know part of of new approach to history and, and new approaches to to presenting whether it's American history or world history or whatever else is is getting rid of that exceptionalism and 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 also seeing history from a variety of perspectives is very important because you know, for, for uh, African-Americans throughout American history, this kind of violence is not, does not seem like it came out of, uh, out of nowhere, right? This is a part of lived experience across centuries, right? Um, and so for, for these mostly white historians and commentators to suggest that this is not something that happens here um, ends up being very dismissive of the experiences of, of lots of other people, lots of other uh, groups in, in American history who this is not out of the ordinary at all, that this is the exact kind of violence they face, this kind of political violence um that they and, and, and people like them have faced for for a long, long time. Um so and I think Joe Biden even made a made a reference to Banana Republic in in a um in a speech he gave. And it's just you, we gotta stop that, right? It's it's uh, extremely dismissive, extremely patronizing to yeah. other countries, especially by the way, because you know, the American government was responsible for for causing all of those coups. Exactly in, uh, in these quote unquote banana republics and in, in, in other nations,
0: yeah, I agree 100%. It's it's pretty chauvinistic, and it's time to move beyond that language.
1: Yeah, well, so in that uh, you know, in that regard, I have a quote for you that I I just uh, I got to read, and I want you to react to because it it's either I don't know, it's one of these quotes that's somewhere between horrifying and hilarious. But um, all right, so this is from the Twitter account of Chiquita Banana or Chiquita, I guess. <laughs> so here it is. <laughs> this is this is real, by the way. From our founding in 1899 as the United Fruit Company to our honored place in your kitchen today, Chiquita Brands International has always supported democratic values and the peaceful transfer of power. We call on President Trump to honor those traditions. (laughs) So
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's, uh, yeah, I I think you nailed it right on the head. it's It's that uncomfortable mixture of laughable and horrifying.
1: Um, yeah, people don't know United Fruit was was one of the most destabilizing corporations <laughs> in uh, the 19th and 20th century um, with huge amounts of influence over uh, big portions of, of Latin America. Uh, several coups were basically engineered, you know, in the benefit of United Fruit and its interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was points in time, I think maybe during the Eisenhower administration, mm-hmm. where virtually every person in the, the foreign policy, uh, in the State Department, Was either being paid by United Fruit, or had been paid by United Fruit, or was married to somebody, or was related to somebody being paid by United Fruit. So, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty laughable to 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 get these uh, statements about democratic values from from Chiquita. Yeah, Uh, but but I guess thanks for the laugh, Chiquita. Yeah,
0: um, maybe, Uh, and and, you know, I I suppose that that just sort of points to um, the lack of historical education maybe that no, exists right. yeah. in, in our country. And and certainly this is going to fall on the shoulders of some, you know, social media intern or, you know, some low level marketing executive who runs the, the Twitter account. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, these are, these are things. And obviously our, our colleague uh, Ricardo Caton would be able to speak yeah. to that as well. I mean, we, we understand that there's this legacy of, you know, American intervention um, because of, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, almost, you know, always connected to some kind of economic interest. Um, right. But that is just, that's, um, that's brutal. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, well, as, as we move on to segment two, I just got to just, just to finish up on Chiquita here, because obviously people push back against <laughs> Chiquita, um, about their history of coups, and and Chiquita responded to one of the uh, res- to one of the people who, who was pushing back. "Quote: We validate your concerns about our history in Latin America. Since 2015, Chiquita has been under new ownership and has taken extensive steps to become a new company focused on sustainability and employee war- war- uh, welfare. But by the way, if you ever just decided to Google Chiquita uh, coup or Chiquita." Um, yeah, I, it, I think I did Chiquita coup. You can find articles from 2016, 2017 <laughs> talking about Chiquita being involved in uh, massive labor strife and, and uh, labor violence across Latin America. So, oh yeah, don't trust the Chiquita Twitter account. No, if you're looking for uh, for your history, right? Don't go to Jillipur either. By uh, <laughs> the <but>, uh, way, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I mean, if you want to know more, I think about you
0: know 17th century colonial North America. Uh, she's mm-hmm. she's an outstanding historian or was certainly when that was her focus and right um, but at some point you know her career went on a different trajectory for better or worse
1: right. yeah better for her worse for mm-hmm. for the rest um, yeah so go check out Jill Poor about early American North American history but don't check out Chiquita for any history at all. So as you move into to segment two now, uh, what I want to do is, is talk a little bit about um, the coming semester because I know for a lot of uh, public school teachers or, or just, um, you know, secondary school, elementary school teachers, the, the new uh, semester, the new um, session has already begun. You're already in classes. My wife's a teacher and she's been uh, going going at it for the past couple of weeks. My kids are back in school. But for us and for many um, uh, college professors, uh, the semester is begin about to begin or, uh, you know, maybe has a couple more weeks before it begins. And so we're starting the semester in, obviously, these very tumultuous times. And I, I, I wanted to ask you, and we can kind of get into discussion about this, how you're approaching the semester, how you're thinking about your classes as we, um, you know, try to, you know, navigate all these multiple crises that are happening around us um, at this moment and really have been circling around us for, the you know, the past 10 months or so.
0: Yeah, you know, in many ways, it's it's strange to think that we're almost at the you know the anniversary of when we were all asked to move to you know remote instruction. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's almost it's almost difficult to remember what it was like to be in a classroom with students. Absolutely, and I certainly you know I was looking back at something I think that. You know, maybe it popped up with regard to something that my son, you know, got from his teachers way back in, in April or so. Because it, their break, you know, their move off of campus coincided with an early spring break. And, you know, it's like, oh, we'll be back, you know, before you know it. Yeah,
1: I remember that, yeah.
0: And, um, you know, it's just that, that sort of strange uncertainty about what was going to happen. And that was, you know, hard on the heels of, um, you know, earlier in, well, I guess a previous year, previous fall, remember when we had those shutdowns that were related to the big wildfires here in Northern California, close to us, at least up in Paradise and Chico in Butte County. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just, uh, I'm having that, that weird sense of, well, you know, this is almost, this is the normal, this is the new normal. So I'm just, you know, preparing my my canvas shells and and making sure that all my links are up to date um but I have thought about some of the things that you know I'm doing one of the things I think is uh, I'm teaching the second half of the US History Survey History 311 and um you know what I had put together whenever this was was pretty rudimentary and now I I realize I have to flesh this out a little bit more and I gotta go back and look at some of these lectures and of course, you know, given given the fact that, that some of the events of the late 19th and early 20th centuries have been referenced by people almost always out of context in the past few oh, days. I thought you were going to
1: say always perfectly, always with a <laughs> there, clear there, historical... Uh, right.
0: Um, you know, which means that now I got to go back in and, and something that might have just been an afterthought or, just, you know, well, let's mention it in the textbook, uh, I'll just leave it to that. No, you know, that requires some unpacking now. So, yeah. um, you know, not super happy about that. I was already kind of scrambling to to be ready to go. But, and, you know, I think too, um, you know, I wonder about, you know, I'm, I always feel like I'm walking this tightrope between, you know, I want to stay sort of in that historical moment, discussing the things, um, you know, as they happened and obviously you know, trying to sort of set that context and say, well, you know, here are the events that we're looking at and let's take a look at them in their moment but of course you have to talk about them or you should talk about them in some ways with regard to things that are happening right now so that students yeah. can perhaps make those connections. Um, you know, and, and I'm always, I don't know, you know, maybe I shouldn't admit this, but I'm always one of these people who cringes when he hears the phrase teachable moment. Um, yeah. <laughs> for some reason, I mean, I understand that, but it's, it's, I don't know, you know. I I struggle with that, and I don't know, you know, how you feel about that. Uh, So here we are, (laughs) you know. One, and I was thinking about this also. Like one of our colleagues in the political science department would always lament um, election cycles because no matter who she ran into, uh, whether it was longtime friends who, you know, were not uh, academics or complete strangers, you know, where she's just chit-chatting with them and says, oh, you know, what do you do for a little? Well, I teach political science. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, the you know, the invariably the answer is, oh, this must be a really great time for you to be teaching, or you must be really excited about the things that are going on. <laughs> no. And she would say, no, it makes my job a million times worse. Yeah. Right? You know, because.
1: Well, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, one of, one of the things I think that's difficult about being in this online teaching um you know i guess we call it modality now where you know all our classes are online is in the, in the past before teaching in class and, and something came up you could just talk about it right you could just decide all right i'm going to address this here and then i'll get into the, you know the stuff i was going to talk about or i'll integrate this uh you know whatever is happening right now with the stuff i was going to talk about but you know when you're recording lectures and in, in in playing them you know reaction means you actually have to go in <laughs> like you said you have to edit things you got to take stuff out things become irrelevant um, and so it becomes a little bit more difficult to just kind of act on the fly and, and kind of, um, you know, adapt to, to the situations day by day. Um, and, uh, and so it, it, on the one hand, is just the more work part, which is, you know, obviously not, not great. But the, the other part of it is you just want to be sure that your, your material, the, the content that you're getting across still holds up. Um, and, and, and as you said, as you said, um, that you're unpacking enough because we're seeing bad history all around us right now. Um, mm-hmm. And you don't want to let that stuff go, right? So you feel like you got to further develop and, and, and uh, get into these things that you wouldn't otherwise have had to do. And, and you mentioned when we were talking the other day about your your good buddy, Ted Cruz, <laughs> who's, been, who's been helping you out as you uh, get ready to prepare for the semester.
0: Exactly. You know, once upon a time, you could slip in one sentence about, The election of 1876 you know because basically the upshot of what happens in you know resolving the electoral dispute between rutherford hayes and samuel tilden is that you know it brings reconstruction to an end in the Mm -hmm. south Uh, the, the deal that's made requires um the removal of federal troops who have been You know, trying to enforce even the bare minimum, you know, requirements um, of of what you know Reconstruction is trying to accomplish, and that all goes away because of you know the, the deal to to award disputed electoral votes to Rutherford Hayes, and you know you didn't need to say more than just, and this brings Reconstruction to an end. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a lot of ways. I mean, for a survey class, that probably would have been enough. But now you've got to go in and you've got to disprove, or at least I feel like, i got to say, well, you know, Ted Cruz doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. And he is willfully distorting the historical fact because he wants to justify this action that he and all these other seditionists in the Senate and the House are taking. Oh, well, you know, there, there's a precedent for this. There's a, you know, there's a... There was a disputed election and Congress appointed a commission. That's all we want. And of course, he conveniently leaves out the fact that the reason this had to happen is because three states could not or would not certify their uh, slate of electors, so they couldn't award those electoral votes. And because of that, there was no clear cut majority in that election the you know, the Democratic candidate was one vote short, the Republican candidate was twenty votes short, there were twenty votes that were in the balance. So, you know, what we're seeing in twenty twenty is is nothing like that because <laughs> all like fifty it, no. states and the District of Columbia did certify their slates of electors. That was never in question. So way to go Rafael Eduardo Cruz, you're really <laughs> well, using your your yeah. princed in mind there very well
1: yep um i mean he, he's he's like the the um the greatest example of is he is he stupid or is he cynical right mm-hmm. and I, I he's i don't know i mean who who knows who's stupid or not anymore but um <laughs> the cynicism the cynicism of this kind of stuff because he he i i think he knows he knows yeah. better he's you know he's like the the epitome of that he's like the debate team guy right yeah and the the point of debate team is to win an argument it's not to necessarily even create the best argument right. or the the most truthful argument but just figure out a way to undermine somebody else's argument and and I mean that's his whole pro- political persona right is that um he's looking for ways to justify these unjustifiable things and he's I, I don't guess he's not that effective at it because nobody <laughs> seems to like him right um but but it's it's so dangerous right to to find these precedents and you know what what happens is that the people who want to believe it are going to are going to believe it and they're not going to check the they're not going to check the history they're yeah. not going to listen to your lecture to find out, find out what really happened right they're just now going to have this argument they can use right uh, to push back against the idea that something uh, bad is happening or something right. they, uh, untoward you know, is happening
0: right and so you know i mean i i, I think that he is uh, aware of what he's doing he's you know he and uh, i'd say the even more uh, egregious offenders josh Hawley. um you know, from your Missouri. your colleague at
1: Stanford, right? My, yes, exactly. Um, you guys room together, I think. <laughs> <laughs> if
0: only, um, but yeah, you know, I mean, these guys are very clearly—they know what they're doing. They are—they're—they're—they're they're, they're demagogues, plain and simple. They are, you know, spewing these um, these disingenuous narratives. They know exactly. To whom they're appealing and what the response they want to elicit is, and you know, these guys are all just lining up to see who might be able to claim the mantle of Trumpism. So um, it's right. it's shameful in the extreme. Yeah, they, I, it's they do know better. They're smarter than this. I, I mean, I guess
1: so. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You saw there was a there was a New York Times article about Holly today. Uh, uh-uh. uh, written by a historian of, of right-wing christianity basically okay um and she was making the case that he's, he's he's a true believer right like he's part of these really really conservative um i mean i guess we call them fundamentalist right mm-hmm. um christian organizations uh he they she quotes him uh, giving a speech to some uh like private christian school where he's um referencing this like fifth century theologian named Pelagius mm-hmm Right. And he's, he's saying that Pelagius, you know, ruined everything because he made the made the argument that uh, what we do matters instead of uh, instead of what we believe. Um, and so so the idea being that he kind of undermined faith and and gave this pathway to which this kind of liberalism and secularism could could emerge mm-hmm. in the United States. Um, so, I mean, his goal ultimately is to create, you know, these are the guys, same guys who are afraid of Sharia law. Right. Right. Um, but but essentially that's what they want to they, they want to do here as well. Is they want to create this kind of Christian theocracy, and you know Donald Trump seems like a weird vessel for that, <laughs> given his irrelig- irreligiosity, right. uh, given his um, uh, his habits, I guess. But um, but for them, it doesn't matter who the who the vessel is, right? They just want somebody, who, and, and and in many ways, Trump is perfect because he is he's kind of without ideals, without principles at all, yeah. right? So he he doesn't have his own ideology in many ways, other than his own interests. So he, he you know. And he's also desperate for people to, to like him and support him,
0: mm.
1: so he doesn't really care, right? Yeah. What system he's he's not going to listen to whatever the rules are, no matter what. But um, but for Holly, he becomes somebody through whom he can uh, you know help push this this vision for United States, which is dominated by a very narrow theological vision, um, you know, and and you know, quoting Pelagius is is not the normal thing you're going to find, uh, you know, in the right wing. But uh, but it, it's supporting this this very particular worldview that, that he wants to get across. And and just by the way, I'll let you I'll let you weigh in on this in a second. But you know we've been talking about Western Civ as as, as something we want to try to get rid of. You're, you're part of that subcommittee uh, trying to get rid of the Western Civ classes. And and one of the arguments that you see in Western Civ a lot is this idea that one of the defining traits of Western Civ is secularism. Right. Um, like that's a thing introduced and. He, you know, you just look around the United States right now and you're like, where is that? Secularism is not, you know, like a level you achieve. It's not like a video game where you got to get to the secularism <laughs> level, right? It's, it's, an, it's an idea that exists alongside other ideas. And so, so the notion that secularism somehow won out in the West and therefore these other things go away is just completely false. And, you know, that continues to be um, this continuum between, you know, a more secular worldview and these, you know, really radically religious worldviews. And that has always been the case. Um, I like to, to uh, note sometimes when talking about this, that the first secular education that was available in the British Empire was not in Britain itself. It was in India. Mm-hmm. The only place you get a secular ed- education was kind of wealthy Brahmins in India could go to these, you know, British founded schools, uh, which were not taught from a Christian viewpoint, of course, because that wouldn't have made sense. Right. And so it was a true secular education. And, you know, it's just. Um, it's just such a, such a bizarre way to try to understand the world. And it's, um, you know, uh, ahistorical, I guess, right. is, is, the, is the way to put it. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, you made me remember, Josh, um, that Holly and, and Ted are part of this dominionist movement in the United States, right. and that the sort of the, the chief of that group, is actually the vice president, right? Mike Pence. He was sort of the, mm-hmm. and and you know, I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear that uh, these extreme evangelical, these extreme right wing evangelicals sort of understood that that was a bargain that was being made. If Mike Pence jumps on board, this you know this white nationalist uh, bandwagon, it's a you know it's an avenue to achieving what we want to achieve. And frankly, you know the. the that goes hand in hand in some ways. We'll eliminate all of the the non-believers or we'll, you know, assert our dominion over them. And and that's the way it should be. That's, you know, that's consistent with what we understand the universe to be like. So I'd forgotten about that. So, you know, I may need to go back and say, you know, say, oh, those guys, it's not that those guys are smarter or not smarter than um, they are. So, yeah, you know, it's like... um, it's not It's not the case that these guys are um, well they're cynical in some ways, but they're you're right they're true believers, and yeah. they see this uh, they're 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 very, very aware of how these transactions they've entered into uh, will ultimately in their minds pay off and and that's a trajectory of history right that is <laughs> yep. that is a trajectory of history and it's very much a, a trajectory of american history right that there is this end point that we are hurtling towards and whether we get there sooner whether we get there later whether we get there you know by force or by persuasion or whatever it might be you know as long as you cross the finish line um, and bring on you know that end point um, it's all good
1: Right. Um, so, something I want to ask you is, um, you know, because we have we kind of started to talk with this a little bit, but um, you know, I asked how you were approaching the semester. But what? Oh, when you think back in the past ten months, because we haven't been in the classroom in ten months, it will be I I think it'll be a year and a half if if we go back in the fall, it'll be a year and a half between mm-hmm. actually being face to face with students. Um, what has changed about your? I guess you know the the content you you give your students the, the the way, obviously the way you deliver it has changed because we're online now, but ha- have you noticed any, you know, significant changes to the content you want to get across to them, like what ideas you want to get across to them, um, and then just your general approach to to teaching and, and thinking about history given given the times we're, uh, we're going through right now?
0: Mm. Um, well, I think one of the things that I, I, I sure have become aware of is that, you know that that time that we we're, we were given, you know, to meet with our students that hour and twenty minutes, two times a week, um, that's a lot of time. And yeah, you know, the fact that you do have to online at least break up these chunks because I remember when I first started putting lectures online, you know, I just assumed, well, I'll just you know it'll be simple. I'll get up and I'll give the lecture that I would have given if they were you know, seated in front of me. Yeah. And then, you know, I'd look at these things when they were done recording or when I was done, you know, with the lecture, I'm like, this is 50 minutes long, who the hell's going to sit through this, right? That's <laughs> yeah. insane. I don't want to sit through this. I don't even want to think about what the students might consider, so you know, the idea that you can kind of break these things down and be very, very concise, I think that that's become important. And, and that may, you know, I don't know how I'm going to translate that back into the classroom. Maybe it's like, you know, I talk for 10 minutes and then we discuss it. And I talk for another 10 minutes and we discuss it. Not unlike what you know, I'm trying to accomplish online in this, mm-hmm. you know, this remote instruction. Um, I don't think that the topics that I'm trying to investigate have, you know, changed dramatically, but I think, um, you know, maybe because I can be, or I should be more concise in presenting them. Um, I, you know, ironically, I can talk about more things, right? If I spent right. five minutes or less talking about the, the compromise of 1877, well, that's, you know, five minutes I wouldn't have put into, uh, you know, a classroom lecture. Right. Um, and it's only five minutes, or you know, if I do my job better, it's less than five minutes. So uh, you know, it may actually broaden my uh, my offerings. I also you know do rely more on uh, you know video clips that I think you know encapsulate an idea. And, and once again, you know, it's, I I would never have shown students a, a whole hour and thirty minute you know documentary in class because. I'm not the guy who would have walked in the classroom, pushed the button, said, sit here and watch this. (laughs) Um, But then, you know, once again, you can offer more things. And you can tell students, you don't have to watch all of these. But these are the ones that might be pertinent if you need some more information. Once again, that takes away from the time I would have to explain that myself. So, you know, thanks, technology. But I think when I I saw that you wanted to talk about this, one thing that really stood out to me is... um, I don't, I don't know about the future of the blue book industry in, in higher education because obviously, you know, I've abandoned, uh, you know, I don't do any kind of timed exam anymore. Um, Certainly not an an essay type of exam where there's, you know, there's this desire to get students to engage in some kind of recall, um, you know, in this arbitrary fashion. I have... Discussion assignments where I say, you know, here's an idea. Think about it and express mm-hmm. your thoughts and be sure you bring in some evidence. Um, and, you know, think about them in, in this, this way of sort of understanding that there's a historical process involved. And the students can take their time with that and some do well and others, you know, hopefully will, will you know pick up what needs to happen. But, you know, that, that was essentially what I would ask them to do when I'd say bring a blue book next time. Right. I don't do that I don't I don't use you know these sort of online proctoring systems or anything like that because oh, It they don't you know apparently they don't work and they're a huge invasion of privacy yeah. um, and we don't teach in a discipline where that's something that you know is really required that was just sort of um, you know that was a leftover of, of some notion of how things should be done so um, I think that's you know for me going forward I, I and i feel frankly liberated from that. I don't think I'm ever going to read a blue book again.
1: That's amazing. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty, that's great. Um, you know, when you're talking about, so, you know, what you can do online where you can present small chunks and you can, you know, uh, you, you know, listen to these if you can and this kind of stuff, the, the idea of how you translate the, that to classes is really, you know, it, you know, face-to-face class rather is really interesting. And it, it kind of gets into this larger discussion about, I, you know, I think there's been a lot of emphasis in the last few years about you know us in the classroom as facilitators of learning, mm-hmm. right? Which I, I'll admit that I kind of it kind of raised my hackles a little bit um, because just you know because we're we're experts, right? We are we're experts in our field. We we know the content, um, and and there's a to me at least, and I I, I might be in the minority here. But I feel like my value to the the class is not facilitating learning necessarily but but presenting content in an in an interesting and maybe different way than they've they've received before and and I think what you're suggesting in that kind of you know not doing like an hour and twenty minute lecture um but but breaking it up is is a nice way of kind of squaring that a little bit um where you are not just you know just a, a person in front of the class doing whatever, but you you, you retain that kind of con- content expertise and that role as a content expert, but also allow the students to take part in that, in that learning in a much more direct uh, direct way. Um, but but it, it, is, it is still an open question about what exactly that looks like. And, and it's something, I, I agree with you, it's something that I really need to, to rethink um, as we eventually prepare maybe in some future po- uh, semester to be back in the classroom uh, with our students. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, I, I agree with you that there's all these things, whether it's blue books or, or, or kind of other things, where all it took was something to kind of push you away from, from doing those things. And once you were away from it, you're like, well, why was I ever doing this before? And I, I think for a lot of those things, we were doing it before because that's the way that it had been done before, right? <laughs> we never thought that we could just not do those things. Right. And I, I think you know, for all the the crises that have been happening, for all the the, the things we've had to react to, um, for all the the stuff going on around us, I think one of the positive things is how much um, the new context has really undermined these kind of you know sacred cows is probably too 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 much, but um, but undermine these these just kind of traditions of of teaching and and the relationship between between you know instructors and students, um, which operated the way they did because they operated the way they did. But there was no real rationality, no real uh, uh, reason for things being that way other than that's the way it was. And so, you know, I hope as we kind of begin to transition back to, I don't don't think normalcy is going to return, but transition back to whatever is going to replace this, you know, not bringing back blue books, um, not, you know, coming to class as a disciplinarian, but as, you know, an ally of the students, um, you know, getting rid of of whatever these kind of old remnants of of old educational systems that we're still hanging on is going to be a really positive development that that can um, you know hopefully carry on. And and it, it it does make it even more shocking when you see instructors or teachers who continue to think that what they need to do at this moment is be a disciplinarian to kind of lay down the law to tell students, no, this is the only the only way to do it. Um, it. It really stands out more than it used to as. Um, it just, it seems old-fashioned. It'd be like, you know, show him to work in a top hat or something like that, <laughs> something like that right? It would just it just looks out of place in a way that it didn't, you know, even 10 months ago, I would say. Yes, agreed. So one thing I, I also want to talk to you about, uh, this this was something I saw uh, on social media. This is a very social media-heavy episode, but um, is, is a teacher, just kind of threw out the question about these kind of day-after moments, um, these moments when you have to come into class Right after some something happened, like something, um, some big event happened, um, and having to come to class, and then, you know, deciding, do I want to address it? Uh, how do I address it? Um, you know, do I change plans? And so, just thought we could could talk a little bit about these these moments, these day afters, uh, where where you come to class knowing your students have something else on their mind other than, you know, the reconstruction or something like that um, and and can you remember these the kind of moments in your in your career where you've had to come into class and you know in in uh, directly after something big has, has gone on in in the world or in the country
0: oh absolutely I I went to work um, on 9/11 I woke up that morning and um, you know I had gotten a phone call from a friend um, and this was back in the day before you, you know, there was uh, text messaging and sort of
1: this, you weren't getting notifications. You weren't, on your phone I was not getting like
0: notifications on my phone. Not that I would have answered any, um, but, uh, you know, and so I went, I went to work and it was obviously, um, surreal doesn't even begin to, to describe it. Um, you know, students were in tears, um, you know there, there I think there was that that sense of how could this have happened um, just because it was unthinkable um, mm-hmm. you know and, and and that's even knowing right you know that that there had been um, an attack on the World Trade Center eight years earlier 1993 yeah. and that you know, the United States of America had 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 these run-ins with uh, Osama bin Laden. Uh, in recent years, right, he had engineered these attacks um, on U.S. Um, naval vessels, and and um, you know he had you know uh, taken these these actions against um, Americans and their allies. So. Even knowing that it was, you know, it was just impossible. You could not believe what you were seeing that day on television, over and over and over again. Right. And you know, I mean, what could you do? You couldn't lecture. I couldn't, you know, go in there. So, okay, right. uh, let's open our textbooks. Or you remember where we were last <laughs> time, right? So, um, you know, so that you just had to be in that moment, um, and there wasn't anything you could do. And. You know, I think in some ways I certainly went back to class in the following days and said, well, you know, for the sake of giving us all some kind of break, let's see if we can try and pay attention to this. You know, it may seem largely irrelevant given, you know, all the uncertainty and the fear of the moment, but at the same time, you you know, maybe it's a respite, maybe it's a break. Mm -hmm. You know, there are other times, too, even just this past November, where I did have a synchronous class where I met with my um, honors section in U.S. history. And we spent a little bit of time after the election sort of unpacking it and what happens next. And, you know, obviously, because this had been a class... Uh, that covered the Constitution and covered issues like the Electoral College and why do we do things this way. I mean, I think students wanted to try and put those pieces together. So so that's, you know, that was all in there. And um, so I think, you know, you I think you do have to play it by ear in a lot of ways. And sometimes you can sort of make these connections with whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish in the classroom, um, you know, like I said, with the, you know, with the, the election and other times it's just, you know, all that has to go out the window. And uh, the idea is just that people need to somehow figure out a way that they're going to cope with whatever the terrible event or the terrible moment is. Um, but obviously that's the one that stands out the most is 9 That's a pretty
1: big one. Yeah. That's, that's the, I mean, that's the event, right? That's, right. that's the one that kind of I mean, we're still very much living in the post 9-11 world in, in many ways, right? Yeah. That so much of what's, what's what's happening now is really um, a result of decisions made in the, in the wake of that. Mm-hmm. But I, I like, really liked what you said that you, you really got to, it, it's hard to have a plan for this kind of stuff. You really got to kind of just do what feels right in, in that moment. And I think we are lucky as historians, like if you're a math teacher or something like that, you know, math isn't going to help explain what what's happening. But as historians, I think, you know, any of these events that happen have a history. Um, they have a context that we can hopefully get into a little bit. And because I think, you know, one of the big the reasons why history is so valuable is because, you know, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase this this uh, historian James Scott, who says um, history is the most subversive of all disciplines because it. it uh, I'm blanking on the quote now, but basically it, it shows us that the things that are happening now, um, you know, are the result of, of things that happened prior, right? That mm-hmm. it, it makes sense, all these things that I don't think any other discipline quite can do as well as, as, as history can. Um, and, you know, so I, I think that's, it's really important to, um, for our students, you know, those moments become these moments also where it's really showing the value of, of history to, to understand our world and understand these things that seem like they came out of nowhere, whether it's a coup or the 9-11 attacks or, or whatever else. That they're the result of of a bunch of stuff that's that's happened before. Um, one of the, the, my my biggest memories of being an undergrad actually is a weird kind of day after. Um, and I, I was just thought of this actually, but the only time I can remember a, a professor, um, you know, having a plan for the day and then and then totally just kind of throwing it out because of events going on. Is I was in a world history class, and the professor. It was the day after. Do you remember when the San Jose Mercury News published the piece on uh, CIA, the CIA and crack? Yeah. Do you remember that that moment? Yeah. Yeah. So it was. So that story came out in the San Jose Mercury News, and um, our professor, who was he was teaching world history, but he was a Latin Americanist. Mm-hmm. He just kind of stopped, and he said, "We're going to talk about the CIA and and crack cocaine," and that's what we did for the entire. Uh, I think it was probably a fifty-minute class, and at at that point, but. Um, it, it was it's such a and, and what's interesting is that you know that that story um you know there was a lot of pushback in the story and uh you know people you know claimed it was it was fabricated and it got all this kind of bad publicity nobody's really refuted it and uh interestingly enough I, I'm not tragically actually is that the mm-hmm. the reporter who who broke the story ended up committing suicide yes um uh so um but but that's that's the moment I can remember I guess that shows how different the 90s are than the than the were than the 21st century, where it seems like there's lots and lots of crises that we can point to uh, over the last 20 years, where the 90s, there was fewer of those where, you know, somebody have to literally stop class to uh, to address things. Um, one of my five finest moments as a teacher, actually, I would say, is, is the day after Trump won. Um, I was I went into my Asian history class. And we were talking about the Ming Dynasty that day. Uh-huh. Uh, and the, Ming, the Ming Dynasty, were, were the first couple emperors were very effective emperors, but they were also extremely violent. Um, and they, they would have these you know, massive purges of the administration you know, to kind of get, away, get, get past these kind of loyalists who were keeping them from doing the things they wanted to do. And so I, I said some things about the election. And I said, well, speaking of sociopaths who want to build a wall, <laughs> let's talk about the Ming Dynasty. Um, so there, that's, that's where I peaked as a professor. I don't think I can ever... <laughs> Wait, you know that again.
0: that's that you know yeah you should have just re, you know reside after that day just got yeah. out
1: on top just walk walk out of the room yeah <laughs> um but i mean it's crazy that you know obviously as i said 9-11 is kind of the the moment uh you know people would think of it as that kind of day after day after moment but it really does seem like we've had like six of those moments just, just in the last six, uh, you know, two semesters and like that. Mm-hmm. There's been so many times where I felt like, you know, going into class or, or discussion, you know, now that we're online where there's, there was something I had to address. I couldn't move past it. And whether, you know, when, when Brianna Taylor and the cops who killed Breonna Taylor mm-hmm. were exonerated, I felt like I had to address that. Um, mm-hmm. When, you know, as we came up to the election, I felt like I had to a- address it. it. It just seems like more and more we're living in this world of, of, Kind of crisis jumping right we're from from one crisis to the next um and it's it's a little frightening that there seems to be that acceleration of of these these moments where mm-hmm. um, we're kind of on that that razor's edge of of you know where is this where is this going to go and um you know I think one of the positive things i've i've noticed is that students are really receptive to this stuff it's they they do find it very valuable when we when we don't kind of turn away from what's happening but we we take the time to, um, to try to discuss and try to make sense of, of the world that they're, you know, living in and trying to survive in. Alright, all so let's finish up here with our, our third segment and just kind of Think about, you know, where where things are going a little bit. How, how do you see the next, you know, few weeks playing out? And, I, I you know, I think there's been this this weird thing where, where historians are somehow both undervalued and overvalued at, at times. Undervalued in the literal sense that history departments are being defunded and uh, classes are being canceled, that kind of stuff. And then, and then overvalued in some ways in, that I see, like, you know, people assuming that historians have all the answers. Like, we, we know because we study <laughs> history what the future is going to be like. And I think you know, at best, we can make sense of the present based on history, but it doesn't give us superpowers to to, to gaze in, into the future. But just as you know, an observer of 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 the world, and and you know, with your your own you know background as an historian, where where do you see things going in the in the next you know week or two weeks up to we'll say at least January twentieth, and <laughs> and then beyond? Yeah,
0: that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I I don't know. I mean, I, I think. I'm gonna try and speak not from a from a personal perspective where you know I know what I would like to do personally right. if I if I had the final say um, but you know like one thing is is how do you deal with um, you know those who engaged in you know if we go back to a little bit earlier in our discussion how do we how do you deal with uh, these individuals who engaged in this process you know this effort whether they you know incited it whether they you know gave oxygen to all of these you know these conspiracy theories and and you know basically urged on these people to do what they did last week um you know how do you deal with them how do you how do you deal with with these people who clearly were willing to cross any line to get what they wanted, um, you know, whatever that might have been. You know, they wanted they wanted to demonstrate their fealty to this guy who controls, you know, the the minds of 70 million plus voters. Did they want to position themselves for, you know, taking, you know, inheriting his position in four years? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, did they want to promote this? You know this this um, ideological campaign of theirs. Um, You know how do you deal with them, right? Uh, right? What's going to happen to them? They're they're you know the institutions are designed to deal with people like them, but the fact of the matter is that there may not be any political will or ability to carry these things out. I mean, there are ways to expel members. Of Congress, or at the very least, to, to censure them, um, you know, is, is that going to happen? Um, it should happen. It probably won't. And so, you know, no yeah. lessons are going to be learned uh, in that regard. Um, it was something I had been thinking about. Oh, you know, and then, uh, you know, this is this is always an issue. Um, and, you know, and it, it shows up in a lot of ways. That uh, in this in this dance that the that the two political parties do right one you know one side always says um okay you know we're willing to, to you know to make that concession or to to reach across the aisle on the other side you know moves further and further in their direction you and kind yeah. of pulls that you know so you got to come closer to us right. right and we're you know we're seeing that being uh carried out you know you have these people um like Kevin McCarthy and and Jim Jordan going on the record and saying, Oh, the president. Medal
1: of Freedom winner, Jim Jordan? That's how you talked about it? Right. Yeah.
0: You know, that that they should, you know, that 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 at this stage any attempt to sanction you know, anyone for what happened the other day, you know, to impeach Trump again, it, you know, that, that would just, you know, that would just ban the flames of division, yep. you know. That's just going to make... yeah. You, you know, yeah, you're, you know, so much for your talk of unity. And, and so the idea is that, you know, we created this situation. We did the abusive, destructive, violent thing. And now we're waiting for your apology right to us. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we, we want you to forgive us.
1: Um, the time for healing is now,
0: right? And, Which was, you know, they were saying.
1: They were saying basically an hour after yeah. <laughs> after the riot, by the way.
0: And you know, and then the crass. You know, i You know, I made a comment where I had an, I had a thought, and and it may not you know go over well with a lot of people. But when I saw those things initially, my first thought was, "This is the this is the kind of thing that a domestic abuser says."
1: Yeah. Right. No, I think you're right. You yeah. You
0: made me do this. And yep. I'm really sorry it happened, but you need to apologize to me, mm-hmm. right? Or else. It's, yeah. it's incredibly destructive. Uh, it's, it's just, and I mean, this, this idea that the reconciliation that needs to happen has to come from the person. I mean, on, you know, on the one hand, you know, you've seen it. Historically, maybe this is the kind of thing that that Jill Lepore was talking about. There are countries that have had truth and reconciliation commissions, you know, where people have had to come forward and admit to the wrong that they did. But that's the step is that they have to admit to the wrong that they did, the harm that they created. And then it is up to those who were wronged to then decide, Okay, at what point are we going to offer this reconciliation, right? right? But that's not how it goes in 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 the United States because you know yeah. everything here is a perversion of decency. <laughs> yep. Uh, yep. It's it is you
1: know
0: it, it is very much a bizarre world. I'm, um, I'm
1: glad you brought up Jill Lepore again because I mean she she wrote I don't know if you saw that it was a couple of months ago where she wrote something basically uh, saying that we should not have a truth and Reconcilia- reconciliation committee after this and that really there should be no consequence at all because she said. Uh, history, uh, history will will judge them, oh. right? And so, you know, she was almost pushing it off to the to the future that oh, you know, they won't be punished now, but but history will remember them as, uh, as you know, who they were, right. which is just so, so wrong. Because I mean, you know, if you're we're trying to use history to understand understand the present, one of the things we have to note is that there's never any consequences for elites in this country. No, um, you know, going back forever, right? Even you know, post Civil War, a lot of the the leaders of exactly of the uh, Confederacy, you know, what had, Lee ended up the president of a college and, uh, you know, I mean, I guess people who died in the battlefield suffered, but w- was anybody actually arrested or executed as seditionists uh, after
0: it? No, I think, you know, I think the, the most you got were the people who were involved in um, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln right. were eventually tried, convicted, and executed. Right. Um, those who were not uh, John Wilkes Booth, who received a summary execution, right? Right, um, but um, but yeah, the you know the conspirators in that plot. But you know, I don't think no, none of the uh, you know none of the top um, Confederate leaders, um, you know, received any significant sanction. Right. You know, these are all people who's who were able to rehabilitate themselves in essence, right? There was this whole process of self rehabilitation, which is the yeah. you know the genesis of the whole lost cause, you know,
1: mythology. Right. But, uh, and, you know, pushing back against what poor said. I mean, these guys end up writing their own history, right? They right. they get to they get to tell their own exactly. story. So exactly. History didn't judge them in the end. I mean maybe eventually <laughs> a little bit now it's it's starting right. to happen, but it's a that's a long time to wait for history to, to do its work.
0: Right. And yeah, so that goes back to your point of historians are overvalued in some ways um like they're the ones you know we're we're not the jurors you know we're not gonna you know we're not the ones who are going to then weigh in and deliver the verdict that uh that everybody is waiting for because you know we can't even always get our students to do the reading how are they going to (laughs) uh, how are they going to you know accept our verdict on things and and um yeah, so I I'm, i didn't know that she had said that, which is frankly just another really disappointing thing. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, right, because there is no reckoning. And there was, and there hasn't been, I mean, that's, once again, that's part of the trajectory of American history. There's no reckoning for these guys.
1: Mm-hmm. There,
0: there certainly wasn't in 1865. And, you know, I mean, Abraham Lincoln did, you know, go down that path and probably would have even, you know, followed it more, you know, fully and more deeply if he had lived past April 14th. Um,
1: Do you mean the path of reconciliation?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's, he was, he was very much committed to that for a variety of reasons. Um, But this was, yeah, it was very much that, that's the tradition that we, that's our historical tradition. Mm -hmm. And then we see what it has wrought. Right, yeah. you know, it it created all these circumstances that plagued this country for the next century and a half. So,
1: right, I mean, then you look at like you know, going more recently, Watergate. Like some yeah. people get slaps on the wrist, but but by the time you're like in, you know, the first Bush, it's like a lot of <laughs> Watergate people were back in the administration. Oh yeah, they're still popping. Right, so you know, Roger is it Roger Stone? I forgot. His Roger name, Stone. No. Yeah. yeah, I yeah. mean, he's still he's still out there, and, and oh, like yeah. all these guys were just continued to be major figures in in government politics. Well, after that Ron Contra, like nobody. Oh yeah, I mean, Watergate. No. Somebody went to prison, but I don't think anybody went. Nobody went to, went prison. to
0: prison. No, they were. Which was arguably
1: were... a, a worse. You know, it was. I think it was probably a worse uh, act of of um, a worse act than, than anything happened in Watergate was Ron Contra. To me, it seemed like the the scandal of of the past, you know, fifty years or something like that. In some ways, uh, uh, well, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it was
0: it was a much more direct subversion yeah. of of the process of government. Because right? these guys basically did what they wanted to do um despite you know the legal um restrictions that were in place you know they they went ahead and set up their own shadow government, and then of right. course, it had much more destructive consequences outside the United States of America, which we're now seeing you know the the fallout from that has has been ongoing for the
1: last yep. thirty years. That's a great point um yeah, so so just, I mean, one of the interesting things, because I think you you, you highlight the the main thing is like, what's going to happen now with these people? Are we going to let them just continue to go back to their lives and just, you know, continue to foment this, this kind of stuff? Are we going to actually make people, you know, suffer some consequences for, for taking part in these acts of sedition? You know, there's been arrests and that kind of stuff, but, but as long as Holly and Cruz and... Uh, and and Trump and you know I, I know Pence is supposed to be our American hero now, but he's 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 complicit in this stuff a, a, as well. If they're just allowed to go back to their day their daily lives, um, that's a, that's a failure. It's a massive failure, and it's going to rebound at some point. Um, it's not going away if you just you know hide it and, and pretend like it, it didn't happen. Um, I do want to, to to give you a little thing to smile about here as we get to the end. So this is from a uh, just a a story from a, a Bloomberg reporter. Let me make sure I have her name. Jennifer Jacobs uh, was talking to some source in the White House. And so this is this was in a tweet. So that's why the language is going to be a little uh, different than you would see in the story. She says, um, so many White House and administrative aides incensed at Trump, quote, he made a mockery of our hard work, furious. Some seen jobs, job leads, offers evaporate because they waited a week too long. Quote, we believe in the work. He only believes in himself. I have to wear a scarlet tee now. Do you feel bad <laughs> for these people? Well,
0: uh, <laughs> this is, uh, this is just further, um uh, validation you know, that there's this hashtag that's out there, uh, hashtag E-T-T-D. Are you familiar with that one? Uh, if you tell me what that stands
1: for, I'll probably have heard of it, but.
0: Yeah. Everything Trump touches dies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, no, you know, I mean, once again, uh. If you were just, if you're just tuning in, and you're just figuring this out, um, you know, and even these, even these people, you know, who who bailed out um, last week, you know, the the Elaine Chows and the Betsy DeVoses and the, yeah. you know, whoever profiles else, profiles and I, courage, right? Right, exactly. You know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, these 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 are paltry fig leaves. And then, yeah, do I feel bad for these people? Um, No, you know, I mean, you jumped on board that train, you know, this, you're, you're, you know, you, you may have been a believer, Uh, you certainly were somebody who, you know, um, working in the White House is a big deal, right? That is a springboard to a probably a pretty cushy job, you know, at some K Street lobbying firm, right? I mean, that's going to make your life. Um, But, you know. Riding the tiger, you're learning the lesson, right? <laughs> That's uh, very it's, point, yeah. it's, uh, it's very much, and, and, and no one has been as, you know, capricious and as unpredictable in some ways. I mean, the only thing predictable about Trump is his unpredictability. So you kind of knew, you know, you bought the ticket, you got on the ride, and it, it didn't end the way you wanted. Oh, dear, you know, it's yeah. like you're coming, it's like it's like those, you know, at those amusement parks when they take those pictures as the ride is yeah. coming <laughs> to an end, yeah. and yours and you got some weird look on your face. Yeah. yeah, yours is just a horrible disaster, and you're never gonna, you know, be able to display that picture. I'm sorry, folks. You
1: kind of, you kind of knew what you were in for. Yeah, I mean, I, the, my favorite part of this quote is, "We believed in the work." It's like, well, what, what work is what? I don't even understand what they thought they were like. What's the the argument for the work that they were doing? I mean, because this was the laziest administration in. In history, right? They they did so little in many ways. They cared so little about governing. I don't I don't understand what the work was for for these aides. Well, I mean, I guess most of it was probably keeping the president off Twitter, uh, making sure he had a supply of filet fish. I don't know what yeah. what what exactly they're doing there. <laughs> well, I mean, I I think it was the
0: work of it, it, you know I think a lot of these people probably signed on for the you know the, the Grover Norquist package. We're going to shrink government to the point where we could right. drown it in the bathtub, right? Yeah. And so I'm sure they thought that, hey, this is the perfect guy because he's so disinterested in governing. This is perfect, right? You know, we'll prove that, you know, less is more. So um, I'm guessing, you know, that that's what they thought they were doing. So by doing nothing, uh, they were actually achieving the goal.
1: Right. Well, so, you know, as we finish up here, you know, we got this incoming administration, um Biden Harris, uh, we got a Democratic Congress and and uh, you know Senate and, and House, um, so unified government for the first time. And I, I I think my big fear and the fear I think of a lot of people is that they're gonna they're gonna waste this opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. That the Democratic Party is gonna continue to be, be the Democratic Party. In other words, yeah, which is you know they want they kind of it seemingly for a lot of them they don't actually want to have this this power because when they have this power they actually have to do stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, this. we saw this at the beginning of the Obama administration as well, where they kind of pissed away the advantage they had. Mm-hmm. Um, so my hope then is that that the old leadership will finally realize the need for real structural changes um, for, you know, much more radical action that they've been, been willing to um, engage in previously. And that we'll see some movement on, you know, whether it's relief, COVID relief, first of all. Mm-hmm. But maybe something about actually providing healthcare for for Americans at a time when that's never been more important, and healthcare has never been more expensive, um, and, and kind of these these other things that are needed to stabilize our society, which you know in, in many ways appears to be, um, you know, maybe saying on the verge of collapse is is too grandiose, but but where you can imagine collapse uh, much more clearly than you ever could before, and so I want to end with a quote here, um, and this is from old buddy Karl Marx. Uh, And he wrote this in, I guess this is early, late 1850s. And uh, I I talked about the 18th Brumaire of of Louis Napoleon last week, but um, this was a quote that I I had picked out and didn't use, but I think it's very uh, relevant for our current times. He says, thus it happens that society is saved as often as the circle of its ruling class is narrowed, as often as a more exclusive interest asserts itself over the general. Every demand for the most simple bourgeois financial reform for the most ordinary liberal liberalism for the most commonplace republicanism for the flattest democracy is forthwith published as quote an assault upon society and is branded as socialism <laughs> so he's saying that in the 1850s it is just as true now and so my you know i guess message for the democratic leadership is if they're going to call what you're doing socialism no matter what you might as well give us some actual socialism um and let's let's try to fix some of these problems that we're facing uh, this has been great, Ed. Thanks for being on.
0: Oh, thanks, Josh. It was it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it as well, and uh, I, I was glad that uh, Chris uh, was out there, sort of infiltrating. <laughs> yeah. These movements. Uh, he's Doing the ideal the work, right? guy, right? I mean, yeah. you know, um, I don't know if there was a if there was a sale at some sort of costume store where he could have you know acquired his. Buffalo horns, or you know, if that's <laughs> if that's too much of a giveaway now, you know if that's yeah. kind of like right. you know those those undercover guys in the in the '60s who you know tried too hard to fit in, yeah. uh,
1: With so. Serpico or something like that. Exactly. Is that what the Serpico's about? Yeah, yeah. No, th- it was great having you on, and uh, you're now you're now a designated you're like the designated survivor. Right, if anything happens <laughs> to the podcast, you got to step right. in. Uh, I'll, uh, but, I'll just yeah. hang
0: out over the. Yeah, I'll just hang out over. And whatever, wherever they send the people, you know, who don't get to go to the State of the Union address, I'll just right. hang out
1: over there. You do have a safe room in your house, right? Um, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll have it built. We're going right. you know, to funnel like some uh, History Against the Grain money to you so you can build that safe house. Right on. Nice. Yeah. All right. Uh, this has been History Against the Grain, episode 34, and we'll talk to you again next week. is innocent. It's a sin when you- Oh, we were.